Lord, we come before you humbly as we've just sung praise and honor to give glory to your name, but also to remember the great cost, the great sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf on the cross. And we owe our lives to you, not in any form of repayment for what you've done, for salvation is a free gift, but out of becoming servants to righteousness, slaves of yours to do what is good and right, and to live lives of obedience and holiness as empowered by your Spirit indwelling in us. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray now that as we look into your word, you would bless our time together, that your Spirit would awaken our hearts and speak to us this day what we are to see and hear and understand and how we are to live in light of what you have to say to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. In case you don't know me, my name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a blessing and privilege to be able to open the Word of God together again today. And so if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1. As you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where something failed you? Has anything fallen short of your expectations and really let you down? Maybe you were really hyped up for some movie and it was a total flop, or a new restaurant that turned out not so great, or maybe for a while you dated the wrong person, or maybe you got a tattoo that you regret. Maybe your dream career wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Was there ever a time that somebody or something let you down? My favorite comic strip is Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. It's about the life and imagination of a clever but mischievous six-year-old boy and his stuffed tiger. And one storyline I particularly remember and enjoyed um, was that of Calvin's propeller beanie. How many of you remember what story I'm talking about? I'll tell it to you. It won't be as funny, but I'll tell you the main gist of it. It all starts one morning when Calvin is eating his favorite breakfast cereal, chocolate-frosted sugar bombs. And he sees on the box that he can earn an official chocolate frosted sugar bombs beanie. It's a colorful cap with a battery powered propeller on top. And it's sure to be the pride and joy of any six year old boy. I can identify. I love stuff like that at that age. So Calvin, over the course of the next, I think it's about 18 days of comic strips, um, endures all sorts of trials and hijinks to acquire this propeller beanie. He force eats four whole boxes of chocolate frosted sugar bombs until he's sick. And when he finally mails in all the proof of purchases, he finds out he has to wait a torturous six weeks for delivery. He camps out by the mailbox. He daydreams about it. He loses sleep over it. He even prays to God and bargains with God that the beanie might come sooner and he would be a more well-behaved, mischievous six-year-old little boy. And then when it finally comes, it requires assembly. And so he tries, but he accidentally snaps a delicate part. And when he does so, he himself snaps. And lashes out. But in the end, his dad fixes it, and finally he's able to try it on in this glorious moment, and he flips the switch. The propeller starts spinning. And guess what? The beanie doesn't make him fly. After all this endurance and patience and turmoil, it doesn't even fly. What a ripoff, he says. Poor Calvin had erroneously thought that this toy would be something that it was not and was never meant to be. And after all the waiting, all the heartache, all the hope, it had let him down. It never took off. 
Now, last week we started our series in 2 Samuel, which Lord willing will take us through the rest of this calendar year. And it begins with the aftermath of the death of King Saul. Saul, if you remember, was the first king of Israel, the king whom the people had wanted, even demanded from God. And at the end of 1 Samuel, he and his son Jonathan died on Mount Goboa in a battle against the Philistines. And this had been a long time coming, okay? God had told Saul earlier on that he would take the kingdom from him and give it to someone else. And that someone else is David, as we know, the humble shepherd boy turned valiant warrior who has for the last half of 1 Samuel been on the run from a now jealous and angry and murderous Saul. But last week when we opened to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we might have been surprised at David's response as he received the news of Saul's death. If your Bible's open to 2 Samuel 1, let's look back first at verse 11 from last week's passage, and it says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. And after this, David goes on to execute the man who claimed to have killed King Saul because he had testified against himself that he had murdered the Lord's anointed king. Now, our text today is the remainder of chapter 1, where David continues to grieve Saul and Jonathan's death, this time in the form of a lament. And so listen as I read from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of God. Now before we jump into the, the lament, notice what David doesn't do. Notice what's missing from this text, what he doesn't say. As Pastor Jesse mentioned last week, this is not ding-dong, the witch is dead. It isn't the celebratory song you would expect. David doesn't rejoice over his enemy's death. He doesn't say good riddance. He doesn't proclaim that Saul deserved to die for his wickedness. In fact, he doesn't even speak badly of him at all. He praises Saul throughout this this song. But also, conspicuously missing from this passage, notice that David doesn't praise God. He doesn't mention God at all. Now, he will in the Psalms. There are Psalms about this situation, and he does rejoice over deliverance from Saul. But this isn't a Psalm. It's not a song of worship. It's not directed to God. He doesn't thank God for how things played out. 
He doesn't bless the name of the Lord or say, the Lord has heard my cry and delivered me. He doesn't praise God for his justice, for enacting his judgments, or for fulfilling his prophecy, all of which happened in this situation. And that's because this isn't a psalm of praise, and it isn't a song of celebration. And that's because this isn't a time to be happy. This is a sad day for Israel. You see, objectively, Saul's death is not a good thing. And we'll look at this more today. Hope is lost. It's gone. This song is a lament, which by definition is a song of mourning, of sadness, of remembrance, and even questioning. And as a lament, it gives us insight into exactly how bad things actually are. Could it be that David really, truly is sad and sorry that his enemy, King Saul, is gone? Yes. His mourning is not a formality. David here will show us how and when and what we must grieve. David, the man after God's own heart, will lay that heart bare for us and show us that it is okay, even appropriate, to grieve. And so we'll jump in and we'll break down this text today in three parts. Three things that David laments, three strong responses, three overwhelming feelings that David expresses in response to hearing this news. We're going to look at the great shame the great loss, and the great pain that David expresses here. And we'll see how the greatness of each one points to the need for something even greater. So first, great shame. Great shame. In verses 17 through 21, David laments over the great shame that has befallen Israel in multiple ways. And what we'll see is that when glory is lost, we realize our need for a greater glory, something more glorious. But before the lament even begins, let's talk about the lament itself. Verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Now, there's one thing that I want you to notice in this verse before we move on. And it's the simple fact that David's lament was intended to be taught. To be taught to the people. All right? It's to be learned, reflected on, repeated. And so for one thing, that means that this expression of grief isn't spontaneous or informal, all right? These words written here are not the transcription from someone sitting next to David trying to listen through his muddled sobs of weepy, babbling incoherence and trying to write down whatever they hear coming out of his lips, trying to decipher it. It's not that. It is a song, and like any song, it is intentionally composed and crafted. In fact, Hebrew scholars praise this song for being exquisitely poetic and beautifully coherent. There is a design and intentionality behind it because it is meant to be a lesson for the people. Verse 18 says, it is written in the book of Jashar. Now we have to talk about this. That book has been lost to history. It is not scripture. It has never been found. Now there is one other reference to the book of Jashar in the Bible. That's Joshua 10. That says that the book of Jashar will contain a poem about the time the sun stood still for an entire day of battle. So probably the book of Jashar was a collection of ancient Israel uh, war songs used to commemorate military history. So for Texans, it might not be unlike how Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson have recorded songs about remembering the Alamo. David wants it to be remembered. He wants this loss to be commemorated. Everything in that book is about victory or loss, most likely something about battle. And the purpose is to serve all posterity, us included. 
It's not just to be read, but learned, to be trained and transmitted and instructed in the people and passed down for generations through oral tradition. And we can say that God obviously wanted us to remember too, because while we've lost the book of Jashar, this one song is in the Holy Bible. This one song is kept for us, preserved for us in Scripture to read today. And so, it's historical, it's commemorative, but it's written for us to learn and see and know and consider. So let's look at this remembrance, verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. The song opens with the idea that glory has been lost. Not just lost, but slaughtered. Not merely tossed aside, but slain. What is the glory of Israel? The Hebrew word for glory here also means beauty. It means honor, just like the word in English. But in Hebrew, this actually, in fact, is the word for an animal. A certain animal. An animal known, perhaps, for its beauty and its grace. It's the gazelle. It says, your gazelle, O Israel, is slain. In the Song of Solomon, three times the bride calls her beloved a gazelle, referring to his beauty and his glory. And so the idea here is that the glory of Israel, this beloved and beautiful one, the country's pride and joy is, of course, her king. The glory of King Saul. He is the anointed ruler of God's people. He's the crowned glory of the nation. And so if Saul is exalted, the nation of Israel is exalted. When Saul is victorious, Israel is victorious. If Saul is feared by his enemies, Israel is feared by her enemies. And so it goes. As the king goes, so goes the nation. As the king goes, so goes the nation. But now, the king's been slain. Your glory has been slain in the high places, that is, on the top of Mount Gilboa. The glory of Israel is no more. And so David exclaims for the first time in this song, the main refrain He laments how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. And this phrase will show up three times in all, once again in verse 25, and then to close the song in verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. So the point of this verse is the shame of defeat. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And so if the mighty king has now been put to shame, laid in the dust, so the nation of Israel has been put to shame. And more than that, if Israel is God's chosen people, God himself has been put to shame. The king's death is the nation's defeat. That's how it goes in war, as in chess. You lose your king, you lose the war. You lose everything, power, prestige, the entire kingdom. And the imagery of the gazelle then is so appropriate. Now, last night I watched some deer hunting videos, since I've never gone myself, but I know some of you have. And I think it's really appropriate when you think about this. Imagine a gazelle, graceful and beautiful, glorious in stature, galloping gallantly through the lush meadows when bang, suddenly a shot rings out and immediately its legs collapse under it like snapping twigs and the weight of its body tumbles forward with its neck flopping lifelessly to the side. It crumbles to the ground like a sack of potatoes. All the other creatures flee. And what a second ago was glorious majestic, honorable, now lies slain, desolate. Not only has it lost its glory, but fast forward a few weeks, and where do you find that gazelle? 
its head perhaps prominently mounted on the wall of the hunter's living room, taxidermied, shoulder-mounted on a solid walnut base. The glory of this gazelle exists, but it has passed on. The glory now belongs to the hunter. The glory belongs to the victor. And that's the story here, that in this case, the ones who get the glory now are these uncircumcised Philistines. What a tremendous shame. What a shame. Look at verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. He's talking about Israel's enemies, Gath and Ashkelon being two of the major Philistine territories. The unstoppable reality is the Philistines are going to go and proclaim this good news, the good news to them of their victory. And this for Israel is so disgraceful. Nothing adds to your own shame of loss more than the taunting and the goading of your enemies. And even more so when these enemies that gloat are the pagans, the enemies of God himself. But you know they are going to party. These daughters will come out rejoicing, dancing. That's the tradition of the time. Even the Bible records in three different instances, at least uh, occasions when this happened in Israel, where upon victory, the, the ladies and the young women came out to greet the men of war with tambourines and dancing and singing. This is what they did at the time. But in this case, it's not the daughters of Israel. It's the daughters of the Philistines singing their victory songs. What a shame. And then in verse 21, David turns the shame on the land itself. He says, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. David curses Mount Gilboa. Now, sometimes in the Bible, nature is called upon to sing and rejoice before God. Here, nature is called upon to participate in grief, to participate in mourning. The land itself is called to barrenness. There would be no life-giving water, no life-bearing fruit, no harvest, no crops, only death and desolation. And this is David's rationale. He says that upon these mountains, the shield of the mighty was defiled. That is to say, here on Mount Gilboa, the consecrated was desecrated. The consecrated was desecrated. You see, the shield of the mighty one, Saul, was once anointed with oil. This is physically true. Shields in the ancient Near East were usually made of wood wrapped in layers of leather for strength and protection, and that leather would have to be regularly oiled to keep it supple and effective as a shield, to repel the shots and blows of arrows and swords. Because if the leather dried out, it would crack and become brittle. And so upon impact from a weapon, it would offer limited protection to the bearer. Saul's shield now lies defiled, stained and tarnished, not with oil, but with dirt and blood, and left neglected and without care to dry and to waste away. In Saul's case, the anointed armor also points to the anointed man. Here was a man chosen and anointed by God as king, once consecrated before the Lord, now struck down and slain. He's been defeated, rendered useless to protect the people. And he who once was the greatest, set apart for God himself, now lies exposed in dishonor, woefully neglected, put to open shame. 
Death is the ultimate defilement. And so to summarize these opening verses of David's lament, whether we're looking at the slain King Saul and his tarnished shield, or the gloating, rejoicing Philistines, or the lost glory of Israel, it tells the same story again and again of shame, shame, shame. It's a great shame when glory dies. Now, we're not just talking about King Saul here, but whenever the consecrated is desecrated, it's right for the people of God to grieve. When the Lord's name is taken in vain, when the church becomes a social club, when the word of God is misused and misapplied, we ought to lament. I'll give one broad example. Think about all the stories you may have heard about disqualified Christian pastors, those who have fallen from glory, those who were exposed for their sexual misconduct and adultery, financial misdealings, or intentional tolerance and suppression of immoral and illegal things in their organizations. You all probably have a few people in mind even, and that's a reflection of of the state of things right now. Sadly, it's happening more and more often with some very high-profile and well-respected preachers and leaders who we've even loved and followed The question is, now that you're thinking about that, how do you react when you hear about these things? How do you react when you hear about the consecrated being desecrated, the glory falling? I think I've heard the gamut. Some of us get angry, right? How come this keeps happening? What's wrong with people? What's wrong with the state of the church? Or some of us are jaded or frightened. Who can we trust now? If even that guy is not legitimate, then who can be? Can I even trust my own pastors? Who's even a Christian at this point? Some of us are proud. That disgusts me. That's despicable. I would never do such a thing. Some are judgmental. I'm glad he got discovered, that dirty blasphemer. God ought to send him straight to hell. Some of us are humble and honest, biblical. We say it could happen to any of us. So we all need to watch out for ourselves. That's good. Now, I've thought many, maybe all of these things, which is why they're on my list as examples. But do you know how we ought to react? It's sad, okay? It's, the reality is it's sad. We ought to grieve. We ought to wail and mourn and weep for these broken men and these broken families and broken churches and for all who have been hurt and affected, left behind in their wake, and for everyone for whom the gospel message now has had its legs knocked out from under it. When these things happen, when we hear of the next fallen pastor or some egregious sin, it should bring us straight to our knees and throw us on our faces. When leadership is lost, when reputation is ruined, When character is compromised, we ought to grieve because the holy name of our God has been defiled, dishonored, and disgraced. It's not wrong to bemoan the state of the world and the society around us. It's not wrong to um, start to be critical or kind of question about the state of church today. But complaint and judgment cannot and must not be our knee-jerk reaction. For all of the reality of brokenness and sin in this world, lament is the right response. And let that be what biblically moves us to react, to support and fight for the orphan and the widow, for the poor and the sojourner, and for the oppressed. But we need to turn and look at ourselves as well. In your own life, where has God's glory been slain? 
Because this isn't just the story of other men's sins, either Saul's or other pastors here today. It's a story of us. How do you respond to your own sin? Do you excuse it and explain it? Do you overlook it? Or do you just know that you're forgiven and move on? David shows us that it is right for us to grieve over the shame of our sin. In a few chapters from now, we'll see him do it himself. Brothers and sisters, is there any work of the Lord's that has been rendered ineffective because of your sin or inaction? Where have you abdicated your own responsibility that God had given you to steward? Perhaps as a husband or a parent, as a friend, as an evangelist to those who do not know the Lord, or even as a participating body member of the Church of Christ? Are there people left suffering in your wake because you set aside the mantle God has assigned to you? Now, I don't say this to condemn you because I fail in so many of these ways under the same condemnation, but I need to bring this up because if you and I are feeling any bit of shame about the things I just mentioned, and if you have any bit of grief over that shame, then that's the starting point. That's where the Holy Spirit needs us to be. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to work. Because shame is not outside of God's ability to redeem. Sure, shame is never the desirable or honorable option. But shame is the appropriate response to sin. Even at the very outset with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Immediate shame. But shame over our sin serves to point us to something outside of ourselves. You see, when the glory of Israel was lost, it brought to light perhaps one significant truth. That what Israel needed was a greater glory than what they had. An undefeatable glory. A forever glory in a forever king. And for us, when glory is lost, it shows us that we too need this greater, more glorious king. Now hold that thought. We'll come back to it at the end. The second part of David's lament is his response to great loss. That's the second point. First, great shame. Second, great loss. Now, if you watch the Oscars, there is always an in memoriam segment that commemorates which celebrities died that year and often also highlights the things we want to remember about them, famous scenes they were in and things like that. Verses 22 and 23 are in memoriam of the great Saul and Jonathan. Now, as we mentioned earlier, even though we know there are a lot of terrible things David could say and has experience about Saul, David only praises him. And now David might be living by that old adage, only speak well of the dead. But I think he's also demonstrating how mighty and lofty these men truly were in reality. Because you've probably heard the other old adage, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. He's building a contrast here. Here we have the mightiest of men whom David is exalting and praising. And he's also doing that to show how far the mighty have fallen. Even the mighty will fall. That reveals the need, our need, for a mightier king. Look at verse 22. David starts by praising their military might. He says, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. You see, Saul and Jonathan really were notable men of war. They were renowned for their prowess in battle, and David testifies to both their resilience and their accuracy. The bow and the sword never retreating, never returning empty. In fact, that phrase, return not empty, is the same Hebrew phrase that you all probably are familiar with from Isaiah 55:11 that we use often, where it says, David, or where it says, um, God in his word will not return to him empty. 
It will always succeed in accomplishing his purposes. The same way God's word never returns void, here the sword of Saul always found purchase. It always returned satisfied. It always returned bloodstained. 1 Samuel 14, 48 credits Saul with defeating the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And it says, quote, wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. You see, the sword of Saul repeatedly defeated all of Israel's enemies. And these enemies weren't weak, right? Look at that phrase, from the fat of the mighty. Of the five times the theme word mighty is used in this song, this is the only place where it doesn't describe Saul or Jonathan. But who is it describing? Their enemies. The enemies of Israel were mighty, but Saul and Jonathan were mightier still. They were also mighty in the eyes of the people. Verse 23 tells us of their public perception. It says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. The people loved them. You remember how they were pleased to call Saul their king when they saw his stature and his good looks. And recall how the people loved Jonathan coming to his rescue when his father Saul made a rash vow and wanted to put Jonathan to death. The people defended him because he was held in such high esteem. He was beloved. Now we know that Saul wasn't the loveliest guy, right? We know his life story. We know his character. But here David places Saul and Jonathan on the same plane, that together they were truly mighty and honorable. He praises them for their unity in fighting alongside each other faithfully in life and until death. They were both cut from the same mighty cloth, father and son, both gifted warriors, swift and strong, threatening and devouring their prey like eagles and lions. He's saying if there were ever a leader-successor pair to hope in, it would be Saul and Jonathan. They were proven in battle, unified in cause. None were faster or stronger or better than them. They had the best skills and the most kills. The people loved them. Maybe they loved them because of the good they brought to Israel. And that's a very real thing. If you have a good leader with a strong economy, look at verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Just as he had called the daughters of the Philistines to be silent, now he calls the daughters of Israel to raise their voices aloud, but to weep, to weep because they've lost something. You see, the result of Saul's military victories was that the nation of Israel was kept safe and prosperous. We didn't see evidence much of this in the text of 1 Samuel, and I think it's because the focus of 1 Samuel was not the Israelite economy, but what was going on between Saul and David. But what this passage here reveals is a little bit more about the day-to-day workings in Israel, what their experience at home was like. And it appears that they flourished under Saul's rule. They enjoyed the plunder and spoils of war. Saul clothed the people luxuriously with high-quality finery. He clothed them with scarlet clothing, red, which represents wealth and elegance. And not just because that's the meaning behind the color, but here's a fun fact. Did you know that red is generally the most expensive pigment? One thing I learned at my job working at a bakery is that red coloring is actually made from crushed bugs. Did you know that? All right. That's not a secret in the food industry, and especially not among vegans. Vegans know this because ethically they're not supposed to eat bugs, all right? But there was this huge outcry back in 2012 when people discovered 
that the Starbucks strawberry frappuccino and the red velvet whoopie pie were made from bugs. Now, the truth is, many red things have always been made of bugs. Candy, lipstick, paint, medicine, cocktails. It's been FDA approved since 1967. The public just never knew it or needed to know it, I guess. But basically, red pigment comes from these tiny grayish-white tick-like beetles that you scrape off the underside of certain leaves. And when you crush them, they release the reddest red. And this practice dates back to the Aztecs, to Cleopatra, all the way through to Bible times. And since it takes 70,000 bugs to make one pound of pigment, you can see why it is so valuable. Okay, now some of you ladies are sitting here now hyper-aware that you've got bugs on your lips. Don't let that distract you from the point that red is the richest of colors, literally. King Saul had his people decked out in red finery, extravagance, luxurious scarlet. And on top of that, verse 24, it says they were also adorned with ornaments made of solid gold, which if you didn't know, comes from worms. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Gold is the spoils of war. Though it was often wartime, the people at home experienced a time of abundance. They dwelt in security, prosperity, a strong and stable economy. Because as the king goes, so goes the nation. The king experienced success on the battlefront. The nation experiences peace and prosperity on the home front. All this was the fruit, the evidence of the might of these two great men. And so David repeats the refrain in verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. The mighty, the strong, those who faithfully and together accomplished great things, won great victories, made things stable at home, protected the nation. What will become of Israel now that they have fallen? So in this section of the lament, we've seen David play up the strength and the might of Saul and Jonathan. Not because any of it is untrue, but to emphasize exactly how truly mighty they were, and in light of that, how much has been lost. His lament leads Israel to mourn over this great loss, and every time the song is sung, we are reminded that even the mightiest fall. Even the mighty fall. If we hope in man, then when man fails, our hope fails. Brothers and sisters, everything on this earth is temporary. Even if you're young, You've already seen this over and over again in your lifetimes. We've seen in just the last month, once again, how international crises can happen overnight. Or in the last two years, it's become so apparent um, what we can't take for granted surrounding health and work and government. In the last two decades, we're reminded that permanent prosperity and economic stability is only a dream, that bull markets and bear markets alike never last. Seasons change. Tides change. Red turns blue. Blue turns red. We can't put our hope in anything because nothing endures, nothing lasts. We can't fully hope in any structure or system or any leader or any man, let alone ourselves. In fact, what this serves to us is to remind us of our own humanity. Our own humanity. Our own humanity. The reality that even the strongest will fall is true, especially of you and me. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, we can't even trust ourselves. 
The only guarantee we have is that we will fail and we will sin. And yes, we will even die. Death, that great equalizer, awaits us all. Life is a vapor and everything is passing away, you and I included. We can lose anything and everything at any time. The rug can be pulled out from under us unless unless our trust is in the right thing. Because as our king goes, so we go. So who do we follow? Who is our king? What do we worship? David himself writes in Psalm 20, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You see, for those who trusted in chariots and horses and the warriors, the great warriors of Israel, David finds them truly lamentable because those things collapse. Those things fall. They perish. The only way to rise and stand upright is to trust something greater than the bow of Jonathan, greater than the sword of Saul, even those things that always find purchase. When the mighty have fallen, it points to our need for a greater and mightier king. Now hold that thought again. Let's get to our third point. We saw great shame, great loss, and now great pain. Great pain. In the final stanza of this very public lament comes a sentiment that is shockingly private. And what David's pain will show us is that when we suffer the loss of a beloved, we need a more lasting love. Starting at the end of verse 25. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David's grief now shifts from Israel's national loss to his own personal loss, his relationship with Jonathan. And in losing Jonathan, David has lost more than his leader or his prince. He's lost something more valuable than the economy, worth more to him than all the scarlet cloth and gold in Israel. He's lost his dearest, most treasured friend. Now remember, who is Jonathan to David? He was a kindred spirit, right? Like him, he was a man of war, courageous, who sought after God and trusted him for victory. When the Bible speaks of them, it says that their souls were knit together. They loved each other as their own soul. Now that's closer than a friend. That's closer than a brother. That's closer than a child or even a spouse. Because while some of those relationships are your blood or your flesh, None of them are your soul. David and Jonathan truly loved each other as themselves. In verse 26, he says, Very pleasant have you been to me. And that is actually the same word from verse 23. It should say, You have been very lovely to me. In fact, he continues, Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, if you have questions about that, we studied the idea of covenant friendship back in 1 Samuel 18. So you can go back and listen to that if you want to. But just to summarize, this is not describing a sensual love or a sexual relationship. Rather, it is a deep friendship marked by covenant devotion. I mean, even if you just look at all of David's relationships at face value, I think face value, I think it's pretty easy to argue that his friendship with Jonathan was deeper than all of his marriages, right? His first wife, Michal, she loved him, but at this point, she'd been given away to someone else. It's not for a few chapters more that he'll be able to get her back. And when he does, She's going to hold him in contempt and rebuke him for dancing, and God's going to condemn her for that, right? She doesn't have his best interest in mind. Abigail, Ahinoam, his two current wives, we don't know or hear much about, 
and of his future wives as well. The Bible doesn't speak much of them except to name them. The only one we know best is Bathsheba. And even their relationship as we know it begins only explicitly sexually. There's no personal connection. There's no bond. But who among people is willing to die for David? Jonathan. Jonathan's loving devotion is recorded for us, demonstrated again and again and again in his actions. Jonathan pleaded with his father Saul for David's life. And when Saul did not relent, Jonathan's the one who warned David to flee. And then Jonathan nearly gave his own life for David, narrowly evading a spear thrown by his own father. And to top it all off, Jonathan, you'll remember, the eldest son, the true prince of Israel, first in line to the throne, even said to David in 1 Samuel 23, Do not fear, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Jonathan was willing to always be second to David, to cede his rightful throne to God's anointed one. All that to say, it is understandable that David's grief over Jonathan is worse than losing a wife. He's lost his most beloved, his dearest friend, part of his own soul. And so it is in deep anguish that David laments, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. He grieves deeply because he loves deeply. This is no longer about international affairs or what lies in store for the nation of Israel. This is what's going on in his personal life. This hits close to home. In our own lives, it's one thing when we hear about a tragedy. We read that someone was hit by a drunk driver or someone got cancer or lost their home in a natural disaster or we get an Amber Alert on our phones. And that stuff doesn't really click in our minds. It doesn't really affect us except as news or information to process. But it's a different thing entirely when any of these things happens to someone you know, to family. It derails your whole world. So it is with David. He concludes the lament with a third refrain, verse 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The weapons of war are Saul and Jonathan. They are the warriors And the final word of this song leaves us with this finality of despondence, of hopelessness. They have perished. They're destroyed. They're utterly gone. They're blotted out. Everything we had, everything they were to us, the friendship, the love, the loyalty was no more. They're gone and we are left alone. It's kind of strange that such a personal thing would make its way into this public song that's meant to be taught and repeated But David keeps his sentiment no secret because there's a reality to grief. David shows us how personal pain can be. The reality is that things do really personally affect us, possibly deeply. And so what's the answer? You know, maybe our temptation is to keep our guard up, especially in this day and age. We don't want to get hurt. We'd rather turn a blind eye because ignorance is bliss. Or when things get hard, we'd rather remove ourselves from the situation, distract ourselves with mind-numbing vices, lose ourselves in fantasy. We become detached and apathetic, happily hardened and calloused against pain. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote on love. This is what he wrote. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. 
Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. It's true that love may lead to grief. We live our lives knowing full well that we will all suffer at some point in this life for various reasons. We will all experience the great loss, even of the nearest and dearest to us. And death will always serve as a reminder that things are not right in this world, that we live in a world marred in every way by sin and by the fall. Brothers and sisters, the reality is life hurts. We live in a world that is broken, and this broken world affects us. The shrapnel hits us. There is collateral damage. And we, because of our sin, are already broken ourselves. And so we need to look outside of ourselves, outside of this fallen world for the solution. When what we love perishes, we need to turn to the truer and permanent love of the Lord. We need to look to a loving friend who will not die, a love that does not perish. And so we'll tie it all together. I ask you to hold on to a few thoughts. We'll bring them together here. In Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin often said things that were wise beyond his age. And in this series, while he was waiting and waiting for his propeller beanie to come in the mail, he had one moment of insight. And he said, For each day that goes by, I figure the odds are better that it will come the next day, so my hopes get higher and higher before they fall. It's awful. And life is like that. When one thing doesn't fulfill us, we turn to the next, placing our hope in seemingly progressively greater and greater things, and they fail us. They all let us down. King Saul was supposed to lead Israel to victory, or so they thought. King David, as we'll see this year, will be miles ahead of King Saul, but he will also fail in many ways. And that's why this series in 2 Samuel is called King of Kings, because David himself is also not the greatest king. He points to someone greater. Today we considered great shame, great loss, and great pain. And our three conclusions were these. When glory is lost, we need a greater, more glorious king. When the mighty fall, we need a greater, mightier king. And when what we love perishes, we need the truer and more permanent love of the king. And if you're a Christian here today, you know exactly where this is going. It is unveiled but if you aren't a Christian, I have the greatest news ever for you today. Shame, loss, and pain are all real. And David knows of anyone that, this, that a king is not the answer to these problems because in this case, the death of a king caused these three problems. The reality is we need something better. A better king. A king who cannot die. A king who will never fall. A king who is the true glory of Israel. And here's the good news, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that king, the king of kings. All of David's lament looks forward to and points to this perfect king who will come. But here's the beautiful irony of the gospel. The coming king would also be slain in the high places. Not on Mount Gilboa, but Mount Golgotha. There on the cross, he would be crucified put to death for sins not his own, because he, having lived a perfect life, 
in perfect obedience to God's command, did not deserve the penalty of death. But you and I, we have all sinned, and we deserve that penalty. But on the cross, Jesus took our death when he suffered, bled, and died in our place. Jesus had laid his glory aside for a moment. Jesus took on the shame of utter defeat on the cross. The Bible says he was acquainted with grief. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. And he also experienced the deep pain of personal loss, the forsaking of his own father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As his father poured out the righteous wrath that mankind deserved upon his son. Today, we sing words like, how great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. Tremendous, incomprehensible loss. Brothers and sisters, we have a king who has experienced full shame, loss, and pain beyond anything we could ever understand, all on the cross and all for our behalf. And while our king did die, he was also raised back to life. He was resurrected on the third day. That is what we remember, and that's what we will celebrate in a few weeks on Resurrection Sunday. He now lives and he reigns in full authority forevermore. And we exist to live and love and serve him. Today, if you believe this truth, if you confess your sins before God and repent, if you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die to take away your sins, to pay your penalty on your behalf. And if you commit your life to follow him and serve him as king, you too can be saved. And you can know and be certain that this is what you have to look forward to in eternity. Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4, we'll close here. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are the very words of God that emanate from his throne. Let's pray. Lord, we exist in a broken world that you are so familiar with. It's not what you designed or desired but it is what from the outset we as humanity have brought upon ourselves from that first sin in the Garden of Eden until now, that we have rebelled against you, a holy God, and so we live in a world that is broken and affected by sin and depravity and pain and death and all the shame and grief that goes alongside those things. So Lord, teach us to lament. Teach us to have your perspective of these things, that our hearts may be broken over our sin. Even as we prepare now for communion, Lord, soften our hearts and humble us to approach with contrition and repentance and brokenness over our own sin, not the sin of others. Just thinking of where we have fallen short and how much we continue to need our great and perfect Savior King. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.